you have your Bibles with you this morning, or you have your app on your phone, we'll be in Acts 17. Acts 17. You got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then it jumps straight into Acts. We'll be in the 17th chapter. And we'll be in verses 16. Start at 16, and we will read through uh, 34 this morning. If you would, if you found your spot, please stand for the reading of Christ's Word. May you hear the Word of Christ. Now while Paul was waiting for them, and this is Silas and Timothy who he's waiting for, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and his resurrection. And they took him and brought him before the Areopagus, saying, May we he, uh, know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worships, of worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to humankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, For we have indeed been his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like silver or gold or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this we may be given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also was Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and others with them. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for gathering us here this morning to hear your word, to sing psalms of praise, to join together as one body. May you now unify us by your word. 
Because as Paul presents so many times throughout the scriptures, it is the unity of the church, the binding together is what greatly matters. That we are each members of a different part of the body, but yet we are all one body and you are our head, Christ. You're the one that gives us direction and guidance. You tell the body where to go and how to act and how to be. And so, Lord, may we hear your word this morning. May you give us life and give light to our path so that we might present you with honesty and humbleness. We offer these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So here we are, the last Sunday in March, five Sundays in all that we've been trying to figure out what it means to keep uh, small things. And the small thing for March has been planted in the church. And so each week has built on the next. We began uh, trying to ask the question, whose are we? To whom do we belong? And of course, we answered, we belong to Christ. And since we can be united with Christ and be in Christ, we then asked another question the next week. Who are we? What does it mean for us to be the church? So we looked at two things. What is our identity and how do we measure our identity? And then the next week we looked at what are we? That's last week we looked at the nature of the church. What are we? We are a gathered people. We gather here tonight, to, uh, this morning and we gather and we are formed and shaped in the image of Christ and then we are scattered. We leave this place in order to present the beauty and excellencies of Christ. And here we are in this last week and we're looking at the last question. Where are we? Where are we? When we ask the questions of where are we, we're looking at time and place. As our, our second son, Ezra, he's the worst to ride in a vehicle with. The absolute worst. We can go to the store and he will ask, are we there yet? And we just say, buddy, it's two minutes down the road. We just got in. Or if we go to Walmart, it's not even outside of Trenton City Limits. Are we there yet? It's taken a long time. It's, it's his phrase every single time. Or if we're deciding to go to Memphis or Nashville, we hear it many, many, many times. And I'm getting some head bobs from parents and grandparents. You know this question, don't you? What they're asking parents and grandparents, is has the time passed and have we arrived at the place, right? We're supposed to be at this place and has the time passed enough to where we've now arrived at that place? So when we ask that question, where are we? We're looking at the time and place where we live. Now, one of the problems I've seen over the years once it comes to understanding ourselves at the church, we know we know, right? We know we're supposed to live out Jesus. We know that. We know that's our identity. But what I've seen is that it's, we rarely take time to sit back, to step back and reflect on where we are, the time and place, in order to live out with wisdom who Christ is and how we can be the church today in this time and in this place. Because if we're honest, it is very difficult, isn't it? 
we know we're supposed to live out Jesus, but how we live him out is far more difficult. Knowing the right time and the right place in order to present this Jesus with great wisdom. So if we look back in time, in the 50s and 60s, you have a number of things. And don't think I'm exhausting each of these decades when we move through them. I'm just going to name a few major events that happened in, the, in each of these decades. 50s and 60s, anti-war protests that are happening. What about the Cold War scare? Or even also political assassinations were amounting every month. JFK, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, was the brother of JFK, uh, Robert Kennedy. You have all these political assassinations happening and it's building in the consciousness of America a fear of what is going on and what is about to happen to America. What is, what is going on in our time and place? If you move into the 70s, you have major revolutions happening. One, the equality of women, Margaret Thatcher, first prime minister as a woman that is elected. Then you have also many social and political revolutions happening throughout America. And then lastly, in the 80s and 90s, I, I had to stop myself with the 80s and 90s since I'm an 80s and 90s kid. I was giving a huge list and I had to just take it three or four. L.A. riots. Remember those? Scary times. I vaguely remember those. Berlin Wall. I, don't, I remember seeing this wall fall on the news, but I didn't know what it meant. The Berlin Wall. Uh, globally, at least, there's a great economic wealth happening. There is a movement away from a fall of, of communism, and then you have a major movement of democracy, but also capitalism in the 90s. You have a computer boom that is happening at this time. Not just computers, but personal computers. So how the church is reacting and understanding where they are in that time and place, we would never dare say, you know what, we need to be the church as America was in the 1950s and 60s. We can't do that. Because that's the wrong action for the wrong time. We need to understand where we are, the time that we're in, the place that we're in, so that we can respond wisely as God's people here right now. So this morning, I actually have, I'm very excited about this sermon because, one, I love this passage from Acts 17. I could return to this every single month and I think see something different happening to what Paul is doing because it's chock full of goodness in how he's interacting with numerous people with the gospel. And so first... What I want us to do and sort of the tension I want to create this morning is that I want us to travel with Paul. I want us to travel with Paul to reveal the issues, not just that you have here in Acts 17, but to reveal some of the issues in our own time, the problems that we see, the place where we are. And we need to listen closely to Paul so that we can discover some of the remedies, not just that he had for his day, but also for ours. Because when I read Acts 17, even though it's 2,000 years ago, it sounds a whole lot like our own American culture today. 
And so I want us to look very closely to what Paul is doing so that we can deal with our own time and place and also be able to offer some own uh, similar remedies that Paul is giving to the Athenians as he's around them. So let's look back at uh, verses 16 and 17. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him and he saw that the city was full of idols. See if we can glance over his shoulder for a second. Here is Paul waiting for Silas and Timothy. He's just waiting. He's not, he has no business at this point. Yet he takes time to just start venturing throughout Athens as a city. And if you know anything about Athens at this time and place, it would have been one of the most robust, active cities in the European world. It was a great marketplace, not only of ideas, but also of a number of practices that were happening, a number of influencers that are there. And so Paul is interacting with this city, and notice what he sees. His spirit was provoked within him. There's a stirring deep down inside, based off what he is doing. He's just walking and venturing, and he sees that the city was full of idols. Now we'll get to that. I'm going to jump around quite a bit for Acts 17 this morning. First, uh, jumping around from verse to verse back to forward. We'll come back to that full of idols part. But I want you to venture with him and to be able to see what he is seeing and to hear what he is saying as he presents these ideas. And so if you move on to uh, verses 17 through 21, you see that he starts reasoning in the synagogue with Jews and devout persons in the marketplace where everyday activity happened there. And then he comes across two types of people, Epicureans and Stoics. These were well-known philosophers in the time of Paul. In fact, they have a pretty good uh, uh, lineage and genealogy. Both of them are about 300 years of age once it comes to ideas that have been scurrying around throughout Greece and Athens and the like. Epicureans, they would have promoted what would have been like a very simple lifestyle. Very simple in what you are to do. You're supposed to, according to their teachings, limit your pleasures. So we would say something like moderation. Not only just a moderation in what you eat and drink, but a moderation in your living, your lifestyle. So don't accumulate too many clothes and don't have none, but somewhere in the middle, have just enough. Or they would have also promoted an idea where you seek out pleasures. You need to seek out as many pleasures as possible and to limit pain in your life. That would have been a teaching of Epicurus, their founder. Seek pleasures, limit pain. Keep that in mind. Then lastly, they would have promoted very much an individual freedom. You choose whatever pleasures you want. You seek them. You limit the pains that you have in your life. Seek moderation along in the process. That's the simple life according to Epicureanism. It should ring pretty true, church. Have you ever heard life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? That's an American motto. Guess where they stole it from? Epicurean teaching. Because this would have been the motto of Epicurus. Life. You find life, whatever pleasure it is that you have, you continue to choose that life. Liberty, you have a liberty as an individual person, as an autonomous person. You choose those pleasures, but also life, liberty, pursuit 
pursue that happiness is something we know today as the American dream, but its foundations you find in Epicurean life. Well, what about the Stoics? Stoics weren't too far different. They actually promoted a, a, a lifestyle of self-control, something like moderation. You don't have too much, but you also need to develop an inner peace with yourself. You need to promote inner peace because you don't want the external life around you to disturb the inner peace that you are created, you are destined and divine to live out. And then lastly, they would have seen the laws of the universe as binding. So whatever laws you uh, see and experience in your everyday world, gravity, uh, the motions and rhythms of the day, the sun, the moon, the stars in the sky, those are rhythms and you need to live according to those rhythms of life because they are there as laws of nature to bind us to those laws of nature. And what's so beautiful about this picture here is that Paul understood both cultures. You see he's interacting with Jews and devout persons, then he's also interacting with Greeks. He had his feet in both arenas. He was a Jew by birth, but his father was a Greek. He was a Roman and Jewish citizen. And so this is one of the reasons why whenever Paul is thrown into prison, guess what? They cannot treat him like a non-Roman citizen. He has to go through a trial that a Roman citizen would have had to gone through because he was by birth a Jew, but his father was a Roman citizen, which made him a Roman citizen as well. But notice, he knew first who he was talking to, the Jew and also the Greek. Not only who, but he knew how to talk to them. This is the beauty of this. He's so bold to be able to discuss these kinds of matters. If you look closely back to verse 28, I told you I'd be bouncing around. As he's talking to the Athenians, notice what he does in verse 28. For, and he quotes somebody, in him we live and move and have our being. And then he says, as even your poets have, all, have said, we indeed are his offspring. He quotes two Greek poets or philosophers, Epimenides and Eratus would have been the other. He understood his culture that he was talking to. He knew who they were, but he knew also how to speak to them in such a way that he was presenting the beauty of the gospel, but also being able to appreciate the culture that he was speaking to. That is valuable for us to be able to plumb the riches of that because he can appreciate another culture's poetry by revealing what these Greek poets got right about God. Do you see that? They got something right about this God, and he is even willing to quote them in order to show them, this is what your poet said, and they're right. They're right. We can appreciate, while show another culture's narratives and beliefs and practices are inadequate. We had a great discussion in Sunday school this morning about this. We can appreciate somebody, their beliefs, their narrative and practices, yet show how those, that other culture's practices and beliefs are inadequate. They aren't fully Christian. They aren't, they're lacking the gospel and they long for the gospel. And so when Paul is interacting with these individuals, that's exactly what he's doing. 
when we're discussing religious or spiritual matters with anybody, we can do the same thing. We can take this conversation. We can disagree with them, yet at the same time appreciate what their worldview gets right. And on top of that, we can actually value that person as a human being, as an image bearer, bearer made in the image of Christ. And so what we have here in this second part, this second tension that I see, is that generally speaking, most people are pretty inquisitive about Jesus. It is rare, absolutely rare, that you ever come across somebody who is nasty and ugly about Jesus. They might be nasty and ugly about you as being a follower of Jesus. They might not enjoy the fact that you are a follower, that you belong to the church, but they rarely ever see Jesus and say, you know what, he got a lot of things wrong. They're inquisitive about the things of Jesus. So take time, just like Paul, to be able to understand that person's perspective, but also, also show how that perspective might be inadequate and that the gospel actually promises so much more to them. Because look and see what these own philosophers do. They are inquisitive about this Jesus. In verse 19, they ask this question to Paul, may we know this new teaching you are presenting? New teaching. The Jewish life, the Jewish narrative up until this point wasn't new. But there was something new about where this Hebrew narrative was lining up to. And for them, they started to get their ears tickled about what it was. And so when we see the early church, as we see here pictured with Paul, he's living out the ways of Jesus. And the early church living out the ways of Jesus. But what you find here is that people are drawing their curiosity towards them. The church is living in such a way that they are curious to find out what it is that this Jesus people is all about. What is this resurrection? What is this new teaching that you're presenting? Church, I don't know if you figured this out yet or not. I know you probably have. The teachings of Jesus are pretty strange for much of our American culture. There's a strangeness to them, and I'll get to this in a second, but... There's an inquisitiveness that the culture has about the things of Jesus. There's a curiosity about why you live in the way that you do, why you follow and love this Jesus. Welcome those people and their questions so that we can be a people like Paul, not only knowing who we're talking to, but know how to talk to them about the things of Jesus. Here's the third tension that I see in this text. When we preach, teach, and live out Jesus, it's going to be utterly strange to many. Utterly strange. After Paul develops this full picture, this full sweep of the story of Scripture that you find in verses 24 through 26, and he picks up again in 29 through 31, he gets to the heart of the Christian confession. It's the resurrection. Because all of the Hebrew Scriptures, according to Paul, lean forward to the resurrection itself. So those who first were curious, watch what happens next. Paul mentions the resurrection in verses 32 and 31, and then watch what happens in 32, 33. Some mocked, but others joined and trusted or believed. Some mocked, 
yet others trusted and believed. The resurrection is vastly strange to the world around us. It is at the same time the very hinge of the Christian confession. We cannot, hear me out church, we cannot let go of the resurrection because it is the very hinge of our faith. If you don't believe me, look at 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul lays out the resurrection. He talks about how Jesus revealed himself after three days to the disciples, then to hundreds more. And then he goes on to say, if Christ has not risen from the grave, we are, our faith is in vain and we're still in our sins. It is the very hinge of our Christian confession. If Jesus didn't literally rise physically from the grave, sin has not been defeated, death has not been defeated. And so that is the very point that Paul wants to lead up to this point. Because if you look, they're okay with this whole story up until this point. God, oh, yeah, we know something about this God. Plato talked about him. Socrates mentioned him. I'm okay with this God creating the world. We being some sort of creatures of His divine appointment. If we need anything, yeah, He's taking care of us in some sort of way. He made from one person all nations. They're okay with that. They accept that. They might disagree slightly, but they're all right with it. And then He gets to the point. This God has actually taken on human flesh, and He has died, and He rose three days later. You know what's so upsetting about this? is a Greek word, anastasis. It's what we translate in English, resurrect. It means literally to, to stand up. Why is that so profound for their ears? Why is that so strange? Because dead men do not stand up. They don't. They have never witnessed with their own eyes that a dead man stands up and walks after he's been dead for three days. That is incomprehensible. You cannot have that happen. So that's why as soon as he says the raising him from the dead, anastasis, resurrection, no. (laughs) More than strange, this is weird. So they mocked and walk away, yet there's some still curious about this Jesus, the one who is resurrected. So they join this Paul and they believe Paul. Same way, Americans might believe the same thing. This is where I told you we would connect these two. If you say to the typical American that there's one God, He's providential, He's a creator, He's the ultimate, you can pray to Him, He is of love, He is eternal. He's a lawgiver. He's some sort of moral standard. You're not going to have much pushback, will you? From the average American, you're not. But that's not entirely the Christian confession because it's so much more unique than that. It's so much more detailed than that. What you find in the Christian confession is more unique and more strange Yes, there is this one God. He is one in being, yet three in person. Father, Son, and Spirit. Then it starts to get strange for many people. 
Also, this isn't just a creator God. He's also a redeemer, which means he's interacting daily, resurrecting and restoring broken people back to himself. He doesn't just to create us. He restores us by redeeming us. He reveals himself through burning bushes and prophets. That's strange. This God actually shows himself in miraculous ways, speaks through his prophets about what is going to happen and how things are going to be revealed. Ultimately, he reveals himself, and here's really where it gets unique and strange for the Christian confession. He reveals himself through a person by taking on human flesh. The word we use is incarnation. God takes on human flesh, and he doesn't stop there. He actually performs miracles and heals And then he continues this ministry for three years, preaching about this good news, this gospel, this kingdom that is coming in and through his life, death, and resurrection. And that's exactly what he does. He goes and he takes on your sin and mine. He dies and it gets even more strange, church. Three days later, the Father raises him from the dead by his Spirit. There you go. Resurrect. Anastasis, a dead man stands up and he doesn't just stand up. This is not resuscitation. This is resurrection. Way different. This is where the new heavens and new earth are shown through Jesus. He has a new body of the new heavens and new earth, a physical, tangible, touchable body where there is no death that is a part of his body, and he stands up, he eats, he drinks, he continues teaching about the kingdom, this God actually restores people through this resurrection. So it's not just strange to the Athenians who would have heard that the day that Paul is preaching in the Areopagus. It is very strange even today when you start talking about this Jesus who has risen from the dead. So, in many ways, we need to stay pretty strange, church. We need to stay strange. We need to continue that confession of faith that we are a people that are joined to Him and that we're going to continue living out His ways. And here's the last point I have for you this, this morning. I told you we'd return to verse 16 and where Paul is walking around into... Athens, and he notices something that these people is they're walking around and they have a city full of idols. And then, and you look on in verse 22, it says that Paul tells the Athenians that they seem to be very religious. I hope you can see all over his shoulder because he doesn't get into a dispute or a dialogue or some sort of argument or uh, about their beliefs. He doesn't. Notice what he does, church. He points to their idols to reveal something about themselves. Not just about Athenians, but about the human being itself. He says this in verse 22, I perceive you are in, very, in every way very religious. Paul doesn't just teach us how to interact with others, but he shows the religious nature of every human being in this situation, in this time and place, and also ours. You're going to hear many people say, well, I'm not very religious. I don't have any religion that I follow. I don't have a Jesus or a Buddha or a Allah. 
I don't have any of those things. I rarely ask people, what do you believe? I've stopped asking that question. I take the advice of Paul right here. This is what I do. Personally, I ask them, what do you want and what do you love and what do you desire? I get much deeper. I get to the heart level when I start asking questions. I don't say, you know, what you believe up here. What do you love? What do you want? And what do you desire? So I ask questions like, tell me what you want to be. Who do you want to be? Or even, show me your possessions. If we could go into your house and look around at your possessions, what does this say about who you are? Or even, I ask them to describe for me what you can't keep your eyes off of. That's a very revealing question. What can you not keep your eyes off of? Because that will reveal so much about their wants, their heart, and their desire. And then you even ask questions like, let's see your Amazon wish list. <laughs> right? I can tell you what's on my Amazon wish list. About 500 books that I probably will never purchase. So my secret sin is I can get on Amazon and I can just throw them into my wish list. There's my heart's desires. Or even lastly, what do you spend your time doing? Because what you spend your time doing will probably reveal much about your heart's desires, your wants, and your needs. So I rarely ask people anymore, what do you believe? Because somebody can tell you what they believe but be completely contradictory to the way that they live. I want to know the way and the pursuit, your orientation of life, the way that you live, and sh that will show me what you believe. I don't argue, but I ask them to invite, I ask them to reflect on their own habits and desires and their own wants. So if you want to help people to connect, to worship, ask them about their desires, their wants, and their loves. Because when we do this, what I hope you're starting to see is that just like Paul, when we ask them about their desires and their loves, their objects of worship, we're getting closer to a conversation about religious worship. Because when you start revealing their loves and their likes and their wants, we're getting to a closer conversation about how they worship. And when they see that these things that they have in their life might be a part of their worship, now you're on level playing ground and you say, we both worship, but I worship Jesus and you worship things. Things made with gold or silver and the like, as Paul is pointing out. Why do I do this and I, why do you think Paul is doing this? Because he wants them, the Athenians, to see that they worship. They're after something. They're pursuing some sort of lifestyle and he is inviting them to worship and to pursue this Jesus who has actually risen from the dead. So I'm going to leave you a couple of quotes today. What's great about these quotes is one is from a Christian philosopher in the 5th, 4th and 5th century. And one is from a 20th, 21st century literary writer who is far from the things of Christ, yet he got something absolutely right. First, Augustine, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O Lord. This is the opening prayer of his book, Confessions. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O Lord. What is he saying? That you're going to never stop pursuing, loving, wanting, desiring until 
you find rest in Christ. And until you find that rest in Christ, finally you can see that your heart has been desiring none other than Christ Himself your entire life. And then all of your life will be seen in the perspective of Jesus. That now I can see this Jesus and I am worshiping Him. Now everything else fits into the bigger picture of my desires, my wants, my restlessness up into this point. And then lastly, David Foster Wallace He's having, he creates this conversation between two people. He says this. One person speaks your USA word for fanatic. Did they teach you it comes from the Latin word for temple? It's meaning literally worshiper at the temple. Our attachments, he goes on to say, our attachments are our temple. What are we to worship what we give ourselves to, what we invest with faith, are we not all fanatics? Choose your attachments carefully. Choose your temple of fanaticism with great care. He is spot on. Not a Christian writer, but he has got something right. We need to be able to quote even the culture's poets when they get it right. Because here we have a man who understood that fanaticism looks a whole lot like worship. When you interact in the time and the place, the where you are throughout this week, try not to disagree with people about their beliefs. Invite them to ask deeper questions. What do they want? What do they desire? What is it they long for? Because just like Paul walking through the city of Athens, you might actually find more of their own hearts that are full of idolatry. And take that conversation deeper. Invest in that conversation so that they continue to see that maybe they are worshipers deep down. And that their hearts, as Augustine says, are restless. But guess what? As Jesus reminds his own people and his day and invites us that our hearts are going to be restless but he is the one who provides rest so invite them into that rest this week let us pray father we thank you for the reminder of your grace and mercy that has been extended to us this morning that you have been given you have given your son the one for whom our hearts desire for our hearts are restless until they rest in Him and He offers comfort. He gives so much comfort to our lives and He is able to give us the possessions that we really need and that is none other than Himself. So Lord, may we be a people who understand where we are. We can ask the question of whose we are. We can ask the question of who we are. We can ask the question of... Um, what it means to be the church, but lastly, we need to be able to reflect and ask the question, where are we? What is the time and place in which we live, and how can we invest in people to be able to see where they're at and to show them that they are worshipers deep down, that their hearts, as John Calvin said, are as a factory of idols. We are so good at manufacturing so many idols, yet... May we invite them into this way of Jesus so that the Spirit can reorient their hearts to worship Him and to give glory to Him and to exalt Him because that's when we become true worshipers. 
is that when we rest in you and that we can worship you in spirit and truth, acknowledging that you are king, that you are king and our lives are meant to extend that kingdom wherever we go. And so, Lord, may we be that people this week. We offer these things in your name. Amen.